I don't know why I didn't put that with it. I really got to say, I really like the song. The Banya. Elliot, the Western Conference final is set. It looks like it's going to be a doozy. And we have a game seven in the East, the New York Rangers and the Carolina Hurricanes, because, of course, we have a game seven in the Homer series. We're going to get to what's next for the St. Louis Blues, Elliot. We're going to get to what's next for the Calgary Flames. We're going to get to Jason Spezza and other Toronto Maple Leafs notes as well. But... Let's start by talking about the series that is going seven games, the Rangers and the Carolina Hurricanes, Saturday on Hockey Night. Uh, Rangers 5, Carolina 2, Philip Hedl with a pair of goals. Igor Shosturkin was outstanding. He was Vesna Shosturkin, 37 saves, Mm -hmm. two assists, and an interference penalty uh, on Seth Jarvis, which was really obvious and blatant and kind of beautiful in its own right. Not a great game from Antti Ranta. Um, Brady Shea, on the other hand, I thought was real good uh, for the Carolina Hurricanes. And we are headed now to PNC Arena again for Game 7. Your thoughts? First of all, what Shesterkin did, is that the Ron Hextall hat trick or the Billy Smith hat trick? It just would have been great. I was trying to decide which is more fitting. I don't know what would have been cooler if he got in a fight or scored a goal at that point. We had a pair of assists and he had the saves and he got the interference penalty. What do you think would have, would have topped it off better, a fight or a goal at that point? The, the fight, no question about it. <laughs> I guess Hextall, because, you know, both Hextall and Smith have credit for scoring goals, right? Although Smith was shot in by Rob Ramage, if I remember correctly. Yes, that was shot in by Ramage. He just got credit for the goal. It was the first goaltender to get actual credit for it. Right, and we know they both fought. Yeah. But in this day and age, I think you it, it was so unique what Shesterkin did. He deserves some kind of credit. On a Billy Smith, Ron Hextall level, a combination of both surliness, goaltending excellent, and offensive skill that you don't see a lot of. So I think he's the the 21st century version of those two. It was an excellent performance. You know what really has surprised me in this series, Jeff, is that hmm. the faster the pace has gotten, Carolina's really had trouble keeping up. Like, I know Carolina likes to play an aggressive four-check game, and I know they like to dump in the puck a lot, but they don't strike me as a team that would have a lot of trouble with pace. They have a lot of really good, skilled players. But they just seem to, whenever the Rangers get to a certain speed, they can't get there, the Hurricanes. And you got to think at home, because they've dictated everything at home so far in the playoffs. You think they're going to dictate this. But again, in a one-game goalie battle, you're going to take Shesterkin over Ranta. I don't know what else Brindamore really could have done. You're you're not bringing Freddie Anderson back after 44 days away, and he hasn't even dressed as the backup yet. But I liked on the off day Sunday, he came right out and said, like, come on, let's be serious here. Mm-hmm. Ranta's our guy, and I'm not playing any day of Game 7 games. I mean, wisdom says that this is Carolina's game because, listen, you look at game five, how great did Carolina look in game five? Like, I think Rod Brindamore said something along the lines of, this is the game we've all been waiting for. Like, they look like they're the best team in the NHL. And then the next game, you would swear that this was a completely different team. I understand the 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 pace thing, and that does make some sense, but I'm still scratching my head for answers here. We'll see. I mean, uh, the kids with the Rangers are getting it done. And if Shesterkin plays like that, what do the Rangers need to do? Score? I mean, Rangers could probably win with, with two goals, no? 
You would think so. I mean, the thing that was really interesting for me about this one is that the Hurricanes noticeably sagged after the second goal. You know, the first one was obviously a tough one because it bounced in off Ranta, and the second one kind of went through his legs. It was a weird one because, you know, you think he's going to have the stick down there and the puck's not going to go in that way. I was wondering if he thought there was a pass coming. But if you watch Pesci in particular after the second goal, he has a look on his face. And, you know, for me, it's a look of either, oh, no, it's the road. Here we go again. We're down to nothing. Or it's the look of, oh, boy, like we're in trouble here because we've had two really ugly goals go in. And Pesci, unfortunately, was right in the screen when the goal was scored, so you couldn't miss it. But you saw the whole Carolina team sag. And that's the thing. Like, again, I don't know if it's because it's the goaltending and it shouldn't be the goaltending because Rons has already won a game seven and got them to this point. I would suspect it's more that, oh, no, here we go again on the road. But this whole thing with the Hurricanes, you know, they're a very analytically inclined organization. They like to try to find a reason for everything. Mm -hmm. I would love to know when this is either A, all over or they're getting ready for Tampa what they think is sort of like scientifically the reason for the fact that this is happening. Because I would bet you there really is no good scientific reason. This is one of these emotional feel reasons, like we're just a lot more comfortable in our own bed kind of reasons than I think you can find a scientific answer for. It's very strange. You rarely see this anymore. The margins between these teams are so, so tight in every league. You rarely see Homer series anymore. They just don't really exist. And so I, I would love to know if the Hurricanes think there's any particular reason for this. Hmm. For example, Jeff, I'm reading right now a book. It's about it's basically about the history of the 1990s New York Knicks with Pat Riley. It's called, uh, hmm. I think it's called Blood in the Garden. It's a really good read, actually. And one of the things they talk about was in 1994, they went to game seven of the NBA final and they lost to Houston. And between games six and seven, they talked about one of the reasons they thought they were really off was they had to stay, I think it was two days between games, and they were just really out of sorts. They had like nothing they could do. The Rockets could all go to their homes and be comfortable, and the Knicks weren't, and they don't think that's why they lost, but hmm. you know, they wonder if it contributed to it. Sometimes I think that that's a bit overblown in this day and age, but you know, maybe it's something as simple as the hurricanes are just not as comfortable in their own beds. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, although I did stay at a holiday Inn express last night. <laughs> These are all questions for taller foreheads than I have. Yeah. Anyway, regardless, we get a game seven and that is always a great thing. By the way, the record for most game sevens, Oh, yeah, I saw that. Is seven, and this will be our sixth. Ready to smash this thing. Um, all right, so we'll park that. Look forward to this game on Monday night. Uh, it is game seven, New York Rangers uh, and the Carolina Hurricanes. This one at PNC Arena. Will the streak continue for Carolina, or can the New York Rangers break the spell? We shall see. Mm. Okay, so before we get to what's next for St. Louis, what's next for Calgary, we got Edmonton and Colorado. So this is sort of being framed as Nathan McKinnon versus Connor McDavid. 
Others have said, mm, hang on a second here. No, this is Connor McDavid versus Kel McCarr. While others have said, no, 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 no. This is Connor McDavid versus Nazem Kadri, who we suspect will try to live in Connor McDavid's hip pocket during this season. How do you see this series, the Western Conference Final? I'm really looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, my nipples are rock hard now thinking about it. Oh my goodness, what a visual. I think this is going to be a great series. I haven't looked at the wagering yet, but I want to see what the overs are because I think there's going to be a lot of goals scored. There's so much elite talent. Like I think Edmonton's best players, like if you take a look at the Colorado-St. Louis series, I think for most of that series, Colorado was the better team, even if all of their best players weren't at the top of their games. Like, for example, I don't think Rantanen, for argument's sake, was at the top of his game. I think that Edmonton was the better team from the first period of game two of the Calgary series, and their best players are really going. They are really going. So I see a series here where I think the Avalanche are a deeper team. Look, they were my Stanley Cup pick. I stay with my Stanley Cup pick until they're knocked out. But I think that Edmonton is going to be an enormous challenge for them because they've got a lot of top players playing great and a lot of other players who may not be their top players, but they're playing smart. They're not making enormous mistakes. They understand what it is their job to do on the ice, and that is to play you to a tie and not beat themselves so their best players can beat you. You know, the the only other thing I just worry from Edmonton's point of view is with Mike Smith and not his play. I think Mike Smith has shown that weird stuff is going to happen, but he's going to overcome it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact is that Mike Smith is 41 years old and his body's been through a lot, or he's 40 years old, and his body's been through a lot. It's the only thing I wonder. You know, this is the longest he's gone in a playoffs in 11 years, or I guess it's 10 years, a decade. Mm-hmm. You know, just is he going to be okay? That's the only thing I I worry about for Edmonton in terms of just the overall health and stability of their roster. You know, one of the interesting sidebars to this one is, you know, last series we talked about – Jacob Markstrom and how he almost became an Edmonton Oiler. I think it was only a few hours before the uh, free agent window opened where everyone thought, including Edmonton, um, that Jacob Markstrom was going to be the Oilers goaltender. You know, now they face Darcy Kemper and Edmonton was also in the sweepstakes to try to get Darcy Kemper from Arizona uh, before he ended up going to Colorado. I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't know what the sticking point was. I mean, first rounder. Was it the first? Because I it was it was so. a it was a first rounder, Connor Timmons, and a third. It was the first rounder because Ken Holland wasn't sure he didn't like the idea, and it, the same thing happened this year when we were questioning whether they'd go out and get another goalie. Is yeah, he just didn't believe that it made sense to give up a first rounder for a rental and Kemper's on a one year deal. So the second series in a row, it's uh, goaltenders that we're going to call it the Euler goalie revenge tour. What do you think? <laughs> I was going to call this the uh, the Friedman nipples uh, series <laughs> after you're in their two settings, dormant and erect. Uh, how does Elliot Friedman the, see the Colorado the, Edmonton series? <laughs> 
I love the sounds of this one. Like, listen, this is one that you looked at, uh, you know, uh, last round and you said, if only, you know, Connor McDavid, one more series. I mean, Connor McDavid is playing on a completely different planet here. I don't know how much more we can talk about what we're getting out of Connor McDavid right now. But I'm really curious to see what McDavid and the Oilers can do against this avalanche team that is fast, is skilled, can check, can shut down, has, you know, the most explosive defenseman uh, in the NHL, uh, has a, you know, really underrated, you know, two-way forward in Valeri Nachushkin, to say nothing of Nazem Kadri as well, who's a very effective two-way forward. I think this has the makings of being a fantastic series. I really do. I'm you know, yeah, I, I never, you know, cheer for teams, but I'll cheer for matchups. And this was a matchup that going back to last round, you look at it and you say, okay, what's your dream conference final based on who's left? I think most probably would have said Edmonton, Colorado. And here we are. I'm really looking forward to the series. I, I think it's going to be very exciting. And I think it's one of those series where if you have to go to the bathroom, make sure it's during a commercial. Or an intermission. Well, no, say. not during an intermission because I'm on. <laughs> but in a commercial because you will you will miss something. There's going to be a lot of people in mm. this series that can make things happen. Absolutely. Uh, so we look forward to this one. St. Louis goes home. Calgary goes home. Let's start with the Flames. Uh, you talked about this on Saturday on Hockey Night in Canada and the situation with uh, Johnny Gaudreau, with Matthew Kachuk, Andrew Mangiapane, and you mentioned that Brad Living wants to get some answers quickly here. What do we expect out of Calgary? Well, I, I think what's going to happen is you saw Gaudreau said he's going to meet with his agent, and I think the Flames have been kind of ready for this for some time. You know, Goudreau made it very clear once he showed up for camp that he wasn't going to talk about contract all season, and I believe that held firm. Maybe there were some quick talks here and there, but I don't think anything substantial happened all season long. So now that it's over... I think the Flames are ready. You know, they also, I don't want to forget Manjapani in all this. He's become mm-hmm. a very, very important player. And like Kachuk, he's also one year away from unrestricted free agency. But I just think the uh, Flames feel that the numbers for Kachuk and uh, Goudreau are obviously going to be higher. And also, you know, Goudreau obviously is a UFA this summer. Kachuk also has one more year. I think they want to go to those guys first, and I think they want to find out, okay, where does everything stand, and what number are we doing here? And if Goudreau and Kachuk are coming back, those are both going to be big numbers. What other surgery are we going to have to do to make sure this works? Like, this is two-thirds of Calgary's top line. I think they recognize that and how much it could potentially cost them to keep them. And they have to know those numbers first and those players' plans first before they can do some other things. Like, Manjapani is a big decision. You know, they still have two years on Backlund. They still have two years on Lindholm. You know, Shillington's an RFA, but I think that's a, you know, a a simpler deal. I'm really curious to see what they're going to do with Good Branson, Stone, and Zadorov because all of those players found roles there. Like, you know, I had a chance to talk to Mark Stone 
uh, about Michael uh, later in the series. And, you know, one of the things that he was really proud of was, you know, it, it's just unfortunate the way it ended with Michael Stone because when when Tanev came back, you know, it's really hard to play 7D. And, you know, because Tanev was battling injury and things were a little discombobulated, Stone didn't have the same kind of role he had earlier in the playoffs. But, you know, one thing that Mark said about Michael was, he was really happy to show that he felt he was an NHL player again, and he was good enough to play a regular shift. So it'll be interesting to see how he feels. He's been with Tree Living a long time. The two of them have a mm-hmm. long history together. So I think that they have a lot of decisions to make here. But the number one thing that I really do believe is they're going to go to Kachak and Goudreau quickly to find out what the numbers could be and what the interest really is or isn't. And I, and I think that's going to happen quick. You know, the other thing I think, you know, the Flames are going to try to do is, you know, what's Monaghan's future? You know, he's got one more year. One more year. Is he coming back to play for them? They talked about, you know, obviously he was around. You saw that hug with him and Goudreau after Goudreau yep. scored to knock out the Stars. You know, is, is he coming back to playing for them or are they going to try to move him elsewhere to open up some cap space? Like, let's see what, what happens there as well. Would Brad Treliving already have deals lined up to pull the trigger on to create instant cap space? Like, let's say, you know, they get some traction quickly on Matthew Kachuk's next contract and Johnny Goudreau's contract as well. I'm always curious about sort of what's in the hopper, what the general managers have already lined up, i.e., hey, if we get close on Goudreau, I need to free up some cap space. Will you do this, Team X? Like how much of that would already be lined up, do you think? Well, he is a bit of a wheeler dealer. He's one of those GMs who's in a lot of calls. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure he's looked at it out there. I have no doubt about that. But I would think, though, that you know, you can go 10% over the cap in the off season. Yep. I think it's a great question. I would bet he knows what the landscape is. Mm-hmm. I think he knows potentially what the landscape is for, for some of his players. The other thing too is you can't make those moves until you know what the status of the top guys are. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, like, like would he have all these contingencies already in place? Bang, bang. Like, we signed Johnny Gaudreau. And then this deal happens to give us the room. I'm, I'm just curious more than anything else here. How do you look at the Calgary Flames season? Well, I think they're disappointed. Their regular season was outstanding. They got really pushed by Dallas, specifically Jake Ottinger, who became a star in that series, albeit in a losing effort. And then they went out in five games against their provincial rivals, the Edmonton Oilers, in the Battle of Alberta. But you look at all the 40-goal scorers, the 100-point scorers, players that really distinguish themselves this year. And we should point out, too, they did it without their you know, longtime captain, Mark Giordano. How do you evaluate the Flames for each? I think there's the big picture and there's the end of the year, right? They really thought they could beat Edmonton. They really thought they, were, they, could, they had a shot to beat Colorado. I know that was a group that you know, really liked themselves. They liked the way they played. They thought they could play lots of different ways. I mean, they were really happy with their regular season, obviously. They showed a lot of guts in, in beating Dallas. Like, that was a tough series. They almost got goalied, but they found a way. I, I think the toughest thing, and I was I was just talking to some people there, is that just the way that Edmonton series flipped so quickly, you, you know, you could have won game one, nine to two. Yeah. And then you're up two nothing in game two and, and they could never stop them. You know, Markstrom said he's not hurt. 
I think probably there was something bothering him, but I think the number one thing that happened was, you know, Calgary all year contained teams and you can never control it all the way in hockey, but generally they give you certain parts of their zone where they said, we'll let you shoot from here, but we're not letting you shoot from here, here, and here. And they couldn't contain the Oilers. The Oilers said, screw that. We're going to shoot from wherever we want. And I think that their speed and, and their danger ability and their elite skill, I think it got to Markstrom and the Flames and, and threw them off. You know, I, I think they could handle Tanev being not 100% for, you know, a game and a half against Dallas, but they couldn't handle it for Edmonton. And that did throw off, you know, their pairs a little bit. Like, for example, Goodbranson Zadorov, who had a great year. They had a great year because Calgary put them in into a defining role. You're our third pair and you're going to run over people. Well, they they had to play a little bit higher than, you know, Calgary would have liked, and it kind of threw everything off. And mm-hmm. I just think that the the Oilers took it to the Flames in a way that nobody else was consistently able to do this year. And, you know, the other thing, too, is we're, there's a little bit of dry sidle slander here. You know, I mean, we're all talking about McDavid, and we should be. The guy's freaking phenomenal. Dreisaitl had 17 points in five games, and he's hurting. And like, he can't uh, move. He has to yeah. back. They need to pull, get a crane out to get him the back check. He, he could. He couldn't <laughs> shoot. Like there was, there were times he couldn't shoot. He had. He had a phenomenal series. I, I just think between the Oilers' ability to disrupt Markstrom's rhythm, you know, Tanev getting hurt and putting people in the blue line out of their regular roles. No. And you know, you know, if you look at the winning goal. Look how many great plays McDavid makes on it. Like he he pressures the play and then he goes and gets the puck. Edmonton beat them. It's that simple. It's disappointing for the Flames. You know, the next couple of years, like, you know, between who's UFA this year and in, and in two years, it's Backland, it's Lindholm, it's Toffoli who had a really tough playoff. It's Noah Hannafin. You know, the one thing about uh, tree living is, he does a really good job on the mid-range deals. Like there's a lot of good contracts on that team. Mm-hmm. A lot of good contracts on that team. And he does that, you know, very well. But now we've got the UFA one, so where are we going to go here? You know, I'll, I'll tell you something else someone else said to me covering that series. You know, he says one of the biggest challenges that Calgary has is that you look at the arenas. You know, you're in the Battle of Alberta and and you're going into Edmonton and it's the Taj Mahal and you're in Calgary and, you know, they, they thought they had an arena deal and it fell apart this year. Somebody said to me that was a, that was a really tough one for the Flames. That's another level of challenge for them that they didn't need is what someone said to me. St. Louis Blues. Uh, so Darren Helm ends it it's around his man 10 seconds to go johnson over four logan o'connor helm holds shit he scores he scores he scores darren helm with 4.9 seconds to go in the third period darren has taken the helm and he's about to take the avalanche into the western conference finals kids hard work pays off darren helm is the example finally rewarded is the fourth line for the avalanche they've had an unbelievable game all night long they've been great all night long they deserve what they got and that's a lead with 4.9 left and this building is clearing the heck out i thought it was a nice touch having (laughs) 
having Darren Helm uh, end this thing the way that he did with only a, there was a six seconds remaining on the clock uh, as the old medicine hat tiger scores there. So now we ask what's next for the St. Louis blues and a couple of players that we focus on right away that are UFAs, David Perron, Vili Huso. You still wonder about Vladimir Tarasenko. He's got one more year left on term. You know, we requested a trade last year. And I think we also wonder about coaches as well, most specifically, Jim Montgomery. Your thoughts on the Blues and what's next? Well, from what I understand, Perron wants to go back. Uh, he doesn't want this to be a fourth re- reacquiring by the Blues somewhere. He'll sign with another team and then be back with St. Louis at no, trade deadline. <laughs> from what I understand, Perron wants to resign. Until I'm told otherwise, I expect that's going to happen. He loves the Blues and he loves St. Louis. and It's a perfect fit. It's a great fit. Until I'm told otherwise, I'm expecting that you know Perron goes back. Tarasenko, we'll see. You know, the other thing I was kind of wondering about is suddenly Ryan O'Reilly is one year away from a new deal. Yep. That's going to be an interesting one. He's still an incredibly important uh, player for them. You know, I I think in goal, Bennington reestablished himself as their number one guy. Huso in the playoffs, I thought he was solid. I would be very curious to see how contenders would view him. I thought he showed moments this year in both the regular season and the playoffs where he looked to me that he could be a starter on a good team. I just don't know if he did it enough. Like I I thought game five in Denver, the fact that he won that game, Mm -hmm. to me that was a huge feather in his cap. But I saw also saw other times where I said, I'm not convinced that this guy is a full-on number one. He might be a 1A. So I'm really curious to see, and there's no shame in that. It's the first time he's really had that opportunity. Like, I wonder if there's more growth there. Uh, I'm not insulting the guy, but I'm just looking at a guy who's a UFA right now, Jeff. Are you betting on him being the guy? I have an internal rule about goaltenders. What's that? It's now about to be external. Everybody's about to hear it. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, so here is and how, he he would he play forty games this year, probably somewhere in that neighborhood for the St. Louis Blues. My rule is I don't make up my mind about a goaltender until he's played a hundred games. Then I start to make up my mind. Like I want all the shooters to have a couple of looks at the goaltender before I make up my mind. History is full of. You know, goaltenders that when they go around all the shooters the first time look great. And then once the book starts to get written, it changes. But we make the mistake of thinking, oh, wow, look, this first 30 games, he's looking like a Vesna Trophy candidate. Let all the shooters have it. Like, like, let the book get written. And then let's see how the goaltender adapts. That doesn't really start for 100 games for each. I try to never ever make up my mind about a goalie until I, until they hit the century mark. And, and and only then do I start to say, okay, I think I have a handle on who this guy is. That's do, you think that, do you think that's crazy? No, that's not your dumbest idea. Like that's, as a matter of fact, that, that doesn't even go on your top 50 dumb ideas. That's actually a very good idea. So he's played, this year he played 47, including playoffs. Okay. And that gives him 64 for his NHL career. He had 17 last year. So I don't know Billy Huso. I think we all don't. 
I don't know Vili Huso. We don't. So, I, like, to me, the interesting thing is, is A, you know, what's his number? His cap hit this year was uh, $750. You know, does another team say, this is our guy? Does he want to go somewhere else? You know, the other thing I wonder about is a guy like Corpusalo, and I know the situation is not the same. You know, Corpusalo's made a lot more money, and he took a cut in Columbus where he's clearly comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder, is there any chance Huso says, you know, I take a one-year deal in St. Louis at a bit of a raise, but less than I could get elsewhere because I just like the situation here and I think I can improve playing for the Blues. Like the Blues are generally a good defensive team, right? They make goalies look good. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. We have to hear what he wants to say. But that is one thing I thought about when I watched Huso this this week. Is anyone going to say, yes, he's our guy. We absolutely have to have him. Or would he, or how does he feel? Like, I don't know him well. I don't know what he's thinking. Does he want to be a number one somewhere? Does he say, look, I've got a good situation here. I'm still young. I've got room to get better. And I take another shot with the Blues on maybe short term, the biggest number. Like, he's only 27 and he hasn't played a ton of games. Like, this is a guy who, if he gets better, he can be good. You'd think he could be good into his 30s. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how much the, because let, let's not forget here, for the longest time, Vili Husso was considered the goaltender of the future for the St. Louis Blues. And correct me if I'm wrong, I have knocking around my brain, when St. Louis actually called up Jordan Bennington, the player that probably would have been, the goaltender that would have been called up was Husso, but he was hurt. So Bennington got called up instead and then he went on that magnificent run and, you know, uh, you know, won a, won a, won a Stanley Cup and, you know, put together a, uh, you know, an impressive resume and has a contract reflecting that now. And you're Vili Huso saying, hold on a second here. That was supposed to be my spot. I was just injured and I couldn't get called up. I wonder about that in the back of his mind. To your point, does he want to be a starter right now? And if he stays with St. Louis, he's probably not going to be the number one guy. You know, at times this year, he was. We saw what happened with Jordan Bennington towards the end of the, the playoffs, certainly. He grabbed it back, and Bennington was outstanding. I always wonder about that. You know, is there a sour taste in his mouth about he was supposed to be the guy? And now, complicating all of this, I shouldn't say complicating because it's a nice problem to have. I mean, the St. Louis Blues have Joel Hofer sitting there as well. Like, you're ready, for, you have another goaltender here ready to slide into that backup role probably as early as next season. So I don't know. This one to me is fascinating and complicating all of it is I have no idea how good Billy Huso is. And you're right. I think Jim Montgomery gets an interview in Philly Mm -hmm. and maybe elsewhere. You know, we'll see. But we'll talk about the coaches in a minute. I think they have to give Perunovic a new deal. And, you know, he's obviously going to be a defenseman of the future there. Perron is the big one. Tarasenko, what's his future? But quietly, very quietly, that O'Reilly contract, that one looms very large. Like, I think the Blues are always going to be there. I I think they're a well-coached team. I think they're a very disciplined team. I think they've got a lot of really good players. They finally found a way to let some of their younger players get a bit more of a, a rope. And generally, I think their front office makes good decisions. In this series, Colorado was the better team. They had better chances. They outshot them. But the Blues had a great power play. 
and they were opportunistic and they kind of played the way that they realized they had to protect the house against Colorado. They couldn't skate with them up the ice. Like, I think they played a way that gave themselves the best chance to win. And, you know, that to me is the hallmark of a pretty smart team. I think they'll find a way, but they've got some tough choices. Really want to uh, mention as well, it was great seeing Leela Anderson. Oh, yeah. At the game. That was just fantastic. Brought back such wonderful memories, and it's so good to see her there. That was uh, that was outstanding. All right, you mentioned the coaches. Uh, we all seem to be on Barry Trotz watch. What uh, I don't know if it's going to be daily updates now with uh, who Barry Trotz is talking to, but you read out a laundry list on Saturday of, of teams that are interested and have shown interest and have already interviewed some of uh, these teams, uh, Barry Trotz. What's the latest? Guys tell me that it's quiet until kind of Trotz makes his call here. Is he controlling the market? Like I said, I mean, I'll just be like, is, is Barry Trotz controlling the coaching market right now? I don't know if I would say controlling the coaches mar- market because, you know, I did get a call someone for, uh, on Sunday from someone who said to me, there are some teams that, you know, may not want to wait that long. And like, I don't know what the timeline is here. And, and I think Trotz has said exactly what, um, you know, I, I kind of said there that he's not rushing to make a decision. Like if he decides... You know, for example, if somebody does something this week that makes them say, yes, you know, this is the best for me and my family, then let's go. That that could happen. But nobody's necessarily expecting that to happen. You know, I, I asked someone, you know, who I think would have a good idea, how long is this going to take? And they said, you know, I'm not really comfortable with that yet because they're not sure that everybody who wants to be part of this has weighed in. And we're still waiting for clarity in Florida, right? Yes. To be honest, like one team that's been really quiet is Seattle. And I don't know if anybody's expecting a coaching change there. But I think what has happened is that everybody there knows that they can't have a repeat of this year, right? So I think everybody just kind of wonders, like, what's their plan going to be in terms of you know, going and getting at it. So I think everybody's just careful, right? The thing about trots is, you know, we mentioned all the teams who we believe are involved, Winnipeg, Philadelphia, Vegas, Detroit, and Dallas. Dallas. And someone said to me, like, some of these meetings have been full-on conversations, and some of them, at least one, and I'm not 100% sure which one it was, I think it's possible Vegas, but I don't know, was a phone call or a Zoom call or whatever. So there still could be more to it. I do think Winnipeg is very serious, but I don't think they're the only ones. And it's just difficult to get a handle on the timeline. And I wouldn't want to say, Jeff, that he controls the market. Mm-hmm. But I do want to say that I think there are some teams who are prepared to wait to get a better handle on what he's thinking. Okay. The only other thing I want to mention about Winnipeg is there seems to be some talk that Scott Arneal, who was in Washington the last few years, could end up with the Jets in some role on the bench, even if he's not the head coach. So that's something to watch out for, too, to see if that comes to fruition. We'll pay attention there. (music) 
news on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Jason Spezza, after 19 seasons in the NHL, we think of him with the Ottawa Senators, certainly going to the Stanley Cup final in 2007. Uh, we think of him with the Dallas Stars and a really nice social media tribute from Jamie Benn for Jason Spezza. And we think of him most recently playing with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He calls it a career, uh, 1,248 games, uh, 995 points. Uh, he takes a role as the special assistant to the general manager, Kyle Dubas, of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And the question becomes... Is this how the Maple Leafs are going to get veteran players to come in on league minimum salary? The job after the career, Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Technically not circumventing the cap. Technically not at all. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good one, I got to say. So what do you go? Got to watch Giordano in two years? Is that what you're saying? Mark Giordano's next. Yeah. Wayne Simmons, too. He's got one more year under contract. We'll see where all this goes. You know, I got to tell you, I got a lot of laughs today. People sending me texts. Uh, Spets is going the Dwight Schrute route, the assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> so I, I get a good laugh at those when I see them. Well, I mean, this explains why, you know, Spetsa has gone into kind of like a, uh, you know, I, I was trying, I was, I'm sure I wasn't the only reporter, but I was, you know, I was trying to reach him over the past couple of days. And he was, you know, obviously he had a plan and, uh, I thought it was really interesting that one of the things that Dubas said in the media conference was Just that begin by saying appreciate everybody joining us here on a Sunday afternoon. Be unsurprising to those that know him that uh, one of the key things for Jason was that he wanted to get going on the next phase of his career, but wanted to be uh, very cognizant of the playoffs ongoing and didn't want to do anything on any uh, game day. And um, once it was announced that the the uh, conference final would begin on Tuesday night, it left today as the only dark day of the of the playoffs uh, for quite some time. So um, we appreciate everyone jumping on on a Sunday afternoon here. I think that that probably in a lot of ways explains uh, Spezza best is that he knew that hockey gave him a gift and he wanted to treat it with respect. And I wasn't surprised upon hearing that rationale. It made a lot of sense to me uh, knowing him. He really loved the game. Uh, he, he really loved being around it. I'm sure that even though he's excited about his new challenge, and I do believe if he wants to be, he will be a GM in this league someday. I think that it's still hard to close the chapter as a player. It's never easy. Like even the best GMs, tell you that it's still not the same rush as a player. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, you know, it's a tough challenge for everybody. I, I completely understand it. There's a lot of things I think about with Spezza. He's one of the first players, like, I really, quote unquote, grew up with. You know, I, I interviewed him as a teenager, like a lot of other reporters did. And now, basically, I worked through his whole career. It's It makes me feel very old in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, the, one of the things that uh, I, I always remember was when Spezza was an Ontario Hockey League player, he asked for a trade, and he was such a big star that we went to go interview him at his house about asking for a trade in the Ontario Hockey League. And then when he got traded, uh, we went to his house to interview him. And, you know, one of the questions I asked him was, you know, now that this has happened, are you happy or is there any chance that this could ever happen again? And watching the interview as I was doing it, and I believe it was Spetz's living room, were his mother and his representative at the time, who was Darren Ferris. 
And uh, Darren Ferris said to stop the interview. And he said, we don't want to answer that question. We want to answer. We wanted to do this positively. And I said to them, I said, guys, you know, I understand this. I would just say that, you know, I think people are wondering. And I think if the answer is no, I think it would be beneficial to Spetsa to say that this was a one-time thing unfortunately in a situation that went badly and I'm going to be happy to go to play and it's not going to be an issue. And they all looked at each other and I will say this, his mother, her, her name is Donna. She was watching me like a hawk. Like, you know, you always <laughs> say, Jeff, beware the mothers, right? Yes, they are the most Hockey protective. Moms. Hockey moms. Now that I'm a parent, I understand that as I care a lot about my son, but God help you if you cross my wife. You know, Donna was, she was watching me like a hawk. She was, she knew that this was a, a big challenge for her son and, and she was protecting it. But, you know, Jason Spencer, he answered the question and, uh, you know, he can tell you if he didn't like me or anything like that. But I think we had a lot of mutual respect for each other over the years. There were a lot of guys on that Ottawa team. When I first started at Hockey Night in Canada, I had a lot of games in Ottawa. And I loved covering that team because win or lose, no one ran. Hmm. You know, Alfredson, who was my favorite ever. So good. Win or lose, he answered the questions. Spezza, win or lose, he answered the questions. Wade Redden, he answered the questions. Uh, Zdeno Chara, Chris Phillips, all their best players. Win or lose, they came out. Danny Heatley. Win or lose, they came out and they answered the questions. I mean, the late Ray Emery was another guy. You know, win or lose, good game, tough game. He came out and he answered the questions. And uh, there's a lot of people on that team I, I really liked covering. And, you know, Spetsa too. I remember uh, Brian Morris, who was the PR guy in Ottawa for a long time. He said to me once, you know, Spetsa is a guy you should be asking for his opinion about things in the league. And I don't like to bug people a lot, but I would. And uh, that's when I realized, and this was a while ago, like just how in tune he was with things, uh, how much he paid attention to things. He's a really good voice. And the only reason I'm really happy to see him go into uh, being into the Maple Leafs front office is he's not immediately taking my job away from me. Because if he wanted to do TV, (laughs) he would be great at it. Take all of our gigs. You know, one of the things that always impressed me about Jason Spetz is funny because you mentioned the OHL trades and there was something that happened to Jason Spetz that I remember at the time was a pretty big deal with, you know, scouts that I would talk to. And it was after he was already drafted. So it wasn't like it, it, it helped his draft stock or anything. And he went, you know, just second overall draft pick to the Ottawa Senators. So he plays for both, you know, at the end of his OHL career, he plays for the Windsor Spitfires and the Belleville Bulls. So he plays on a small rink and he plays on the international hmm. size rink in Belleville and is still, and I think he was still number one the whole time in the OHL. Like when that happens, you say, okay, there's something there hmm. when you're, you're, you're that guy, when you can do it no matter what size the uh, the the ice is? There's something there. Like there was no difference in his game whatsoever. The thing about Spezza as a player, like I loved watching Spezza. Mm-hmm. Like when he was in the height of his powers, like honestly, for each, like every couple of nights there was a there was a highlight goal from Jason Spezza, 
where, you know, with that reach, with that size, with that skill set, with those wrists, he would do things. You're like, how? How did that guy just like this six foot three, 215 pound, you know, giant of a hockey player, how did he do that? He's like, he's, he's, you know, with his hands, he's, and his, and his feet, he's like, he's, he's five foot nine, you know, 180 pounds. He was just so skilled. I mean, that whole team, like I, I still maintain of the previous generation, and it's an unfortunate tag, like they're one of, if not maybe the best team to not win the Stanley Cup. Like, remember how great Ottawa was? Oh, yeah. That team was fantastic. Murderers Row, Havlat, Hosa, Spezza. Like, to say nothing of the the blue line with, you know, Chara and Redden and Phillips. Like, it was, Volchenkov, it was so good. Yeah, great that team. That team was awesome. And Spezza, he was the highlight machine. He was like the one-man highlight machine. You could always be guaranteed that Spezza was going to do something that brought you out of your seat. He was such a fun hockey player to watch. That's a, that's a really nice career. I know he would have loved to have finished it up with the Stanley Cup, but that's a, that's a really nice 19-season NHL career. You know, the other thing too, Jeff, I think about when I think about Spezza is, is that he's the kind of person I'd like to try to be in the sense that he treats people uh, very respectfully and is very friendly, but that doesn't mean that when it's in the throes of competition or there's something that he doesn't like, that he won't stand up for himself. Remember, he was supposed to go to the World Juniors, uh, I think a fourth time, and he was like, no, I, I don't think it's the right thing for me. I've, I've played here enough already. Mm -hmm. You know, he took criticism for that, but he said, no, this is, this is the right thing for me, and I... I'm going to do it. When Jacques Martin said, you know, this is a man's league, he didn't like it, but he dealt with it the way that you have to deal with it. If your coach isn't going to be onside, you have to make him onside. I really felt when the business called for Spezza to take a stand, for example, when Toronto put him on waivers last year, he made it very clear, if anybody claims me, I'm not going. Yeah. And, you know, he wasn't a jerk about it. He just said, look, like, this is where I am and this is where I stand and I want everyone to know it. I've always liked that way of carrying yourself, polite but firm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what he was or is, is polite but firm. No, I, I think this is the right way. I remember when in the 2007 Stanley Cup final after the first two games in Anaheim, he went and he got every shift of his first two games, and he watched them between games two and three. Hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, it didn't turn out for Ottawa, but I remember some of the coaches and players telling me about that, about Spezza watching every shift. Like, what can I do? I know this isn't going great. What can I do to get an edge? Competitive and determined, and don't let his friendliness and, and that smile convince you in any way, shape, or form otherwise. I always love those Ottawa Senators interviews on the bike after the game too. Just as a, just as an aside, I always really appreciated those. Finish up with a quick note, sticking with the Maple Leafs here, uh, the blue line and Rasmus Sandin, what's happening there? I don't know where this is going to go, but I think it's something just keeping an eye on. You know, with Mark Giordano being re-signed, they now have five lefties. Now, Brody plays the weak side. I'm just including him in because I know someone would say, hey, Brody's a lefty, you idiot. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I, I, I'm just including him in there. You know, there's 
there's Muzzin, there's Riley, there's Giordano, and there's Sandine. So there's at least four and, you know, potentially five. And the other thing too is Sandine, he needs a new contract and Toronto doesn't have a lot of space. So I think that they like him as a player and I, I think that he's enjoyed being a Maple Leaf and I don't believe he's asked for a trade or anything like that. But I've had a couple people just say to me, watch where this goes in terms of, you know, does Toronto feel they have to create room for him? Is he concerned about his spot? And also, is there a deal here that makes sense? I've just had a couple people say to me, Hmm. you know, don't blow it out of proportion, which, you know, we never do on this podcast. Oh, no, no. But it's, it's something you have to keep an eye on, like... Does Toronto have to clear room? Is the player looking for more clarity on what his opportunity is? I, I, I don't know exactly, but like I said, I was told there's potentially something there. We shall stay tuned. And Jeff, before we wrap up the pod, number one, NHL referees, all is forgiven after watching the end of the gold medal game in the, uh, <laughs> in the World Hockey Championships. Yeah. That was, you know, that was really something. Best refs are in the NHL. I know some people don't want to hear it, but best refs are in the NHL. And the other thing, too, is, you know, you had a couple interesting stories uh, on the women's side. One about Brittany Howard. And, you know, I I think we should mention you've been on top of this, um, of the challenge between the two leagues to either make it on their own or make it as one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anytime the name Billie Jean King comes up, that's a that's a heavy hitter in the sports world. So why don't you take us through Brittany Howard and Billie Jean King? Okay, so uh, Brittany Howard, maybe by the time you're hearing this podcast, uh, the official announcement's already been made, but Brittany Howard uh, has signed with the Toronto Six of the Premier Hockey Federation. You know, that's probably the biggest name player to have uh, left the PWHPA uh, and joined the uh, the Premier Hockey Federation from St. Thomas. So I know you like that because that's nice and close to London where you went to university. Joe Thornton territory. I know you love that very much. She walks into this league now as someone you look at and you say, okay, that's an MVP candidate right away. I mean, she is a really skilled hockey player. Her contract is like Michaela Grant Mentis. Her deal was 80,000 US. I don't think that this one is there, but it's probably somewhere around this 70,000 U.S. number sort of in that ballpark. One thing that people may find interesting as well um, through all of this, uh, with all the, the PHF signings, someone uh, is sort of emerging as the uh, the agent of choice for a lot of these athletes who's really distinguishing himself. Is that Mike Gillis's son? Spencer Gillis, yes. who is Mike, Mike Gillis's son. I mean, he represents uh, Brittany Howard. He did that deal. Uh, Michaela Grant Mentis, the landmark deal uh, with Buffalo, he did that one as well. So mm. he's becoming a real big player in all of this. Just mm. remember the name, Fridge Spencer. He's a Gillis. smart kid. Spen- he sure is. He really is. Is there a reason? And I don't know this, so I'll, I'm just asking you why she would go PHF as opposed to the Jana Hafford League. Have not spoken to her, so I don't know. Um, just guess and speculate. I think that's more fun. It's more fun. Just attribute a motive that may not exist. Well, I think that if you're the if you're looking at what what's happening with the PWHPA, I mean their league, their league, their proposed league, and we'll get into this in a couple of seconds, isn't going to be starting until January. We'll probably run from January um, to April, and this is a guaranteed contract for next season. There are a lot of frustrated players out there 
that you know have been wanting something to happen and you know uh, you know what i'll tell you one of the things that i'm told is 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 really attractive here is you know not just the the salaries um which is always good for all hockey players to to get paid and specifically female hockey players but also the benefits package is mm. huge is huge for all of these athletes and this is guaranteed a lot of the money sort of getting is is already being spent by all the uh, the PHF teams now um, so I don't know if we're going to see any, you know, huge blockbuster, you know, WHA NHL jumps from the PWHPA to the PHF. But now, like we've talked about this before, this is going to feel like, and Elliot, you and I are old enough to remember it, you know, the rivalry that was the WHA and the NHL. And Haley Salvian was first on this story with the, uh, with the athletic, you mentioned Billie Jean King. Um, the PWHPA has officially uh, entered an agreement with Billie Jean King Enterprises and the Mark Walter Group. Now, Mark Walters uh, owns the uh, uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. I believe he owns a piece of the Lakers as well. And this is the group that's going to explore how to launch a new league. Now, you'll recall in at the Heritage Classic. He's also the guy who's buying Chelsea. Correct. So at the Heritage Classic, I reported that- You kind of buried the lead there a little bit. <laughs> okay. Thanks for coloring that one in, Dad. <laughs> in March, at the uh, the rivalry renewed game in Pittsburgh, we were at the Heritage Classic in Hamilton, and I reported about you know the investment that the PWHPA was looking at, which is in the neighborhood of between 52 to $54 million over a 10-year period. This is what I was talking about. Um, and this is the group that's putting it together. And then, as I reported in April uh, on Hockey Night, it sounds like it'll look like this. Six-team league in both Canada and the United States. It will run from January to April, 23 skaters per team. Uh, the minimum salary is $35,000. The average salary, $55,000 plus benefits, uh, a 32-game schedule, and a new name for the league. Um, the PWHPA is, uh, we know, and, uh, it's not exactly a secret. They've been working with Deloitte for a long time to try to figure out you know, how to put a, a deal together and, and how to launch a league. So that's where the PW is at. The PHF are, you know, uh, you know, filling up all their uh, all their salary cap space, signing players. Uh, they're launching season eight next season. The PWHPA or whatever the entity is going to be called, you know, they're looking at a January start to their league. So that's the snapshot for each right now of what the uh, where the women's game is at. Um, I do expect. There's probably a few more um, signings in the PHF that'll come this week. I'm not exactly sure when, but probably soonish. I would imagine early in the week. But the big marquee name right now is Brittany Howard, uh, who goes from the PWHPA to the to the PHF. So that that's where the women's game is at right now. Alrighty. And with that, I will let you know, Elliot, taking us out, a seven-piece band from Seattle that just dropped their third full-length record. The Dip is a group that has a lot of bounce, creative mixing, and a ton of rhythm and blues. Their live shows as well, amazing. During the recording of the latest record, the band embraced anti-perfectionism as a way to put a spotlight on each band member's musical craft. I like to think that we highlight anti-perfectionism here on the podcast on a uh, almost daily basis here. From sticking with it, here's The Dip with Apollonia on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. I want to see your tan 
disappear into the misty morning fog. 